0: You know, beginning in the month of September, uh, in the pastors' senior pastor series, I felt called, I felt led from the Lord to begin to uh, talk about uh, revival. This is not working. Okay, thank you. Uh, because we believe that for a church to be a vibrant church of disciple-makers, that reproduces vibrant churches locally and globally, it takes more than signing out for another program. It takes more than embarking on another journey of doing more things. It's much more than that. We believe that we have to be right with God ultimately for us to be a vibrant church together. And therefore, we felt I felt led to begin to preach from the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. And then for the past two Sundays, we touched on a certain aspect of that. And beginning this week, we want to embark on chapter nine. You know, Ruth Barton is an author. She used to work with Intervarsity, and then she felt led to begin a ministry to help people to grow deep in Christ, to be revived in the Spirit. And and when I read her book, one of the one of the most uh, uh, significant sentence or the phrase in her book was I helped so many people to find Jesus. I helped so many people to grow deep in Christ. But you know what? I miss God. And that short phrase really caught my attention. I miss God. Do you miss God? Are you deeply engaged? Are you intimate with God? But Ruth Button was so busy doing God's work, ultimately she acknowledged that I miss God because God is not as visible in my life. And I wonder how many of us feel that way. God is not visible in our lives. Because God promises a life of abundance. He promises the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He promises that we grow together and walk with Him until we see Him again. And how come Christianity is just worship, give an offering, do something, go home. Worship, do something, go home. Is that all about? Is that Christianity is all about? But if God is God, and this God is so abundant, we believe that it is much more than that, and we barely scratch the surface. And therefore we feel there's a need, we feel compelled to come and seek God together. We call people to pray together. We call people to read God's word together. And this morning, I want to expound God's word from chapter 9 of the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 9. And, and last week we talked about the festival of Booth. As a way to relieve that wilderness experience. As a reminder of how they can connect and relieve that experience with God. And this morning, I want to call you to relieve that experience of revival from the Israelites that when they opened up God's Word, they all stood together and read God's Word together for six hours. But well, we won't do that for six hours. We'll do that for six minutes. Okay. And so for that, let's relieve the experience of standing together to read the Scriptures. Uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9 in your cell phone or in your uh, Bible, uh, and then let's stand together. We shall read God's Word together. Just like, just like Nehemiah, they read, they stood and read the book uh, together. Let's stand and read together, Nehemiah chapter nine, verses one through fifteen. Let's read. Now, on the twenty-fourth day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Canil, Shebaniah, Bani, Serebiah, Bani, and Canini. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Canil, Bani, Heshabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shubaniah, and Petahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all the host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Gugasites. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. But you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the seas on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai, and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you have made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes, and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you have sworn to give them. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes that we may see Jesus. Open our hearts that we may be receptive to your word. Open our ears that we may hear your word speaking to us and through the power of the Holy Spirit and we will submit to you. In Jesus' Then we pray. Amen. Maybe may be seated. When revival breaks out in chapter 9, there is a display of genuine repentance. But revival doesn't happen in one event. By the time we come to chapter 9, on the 24th day of the seventh month, which is around September and October of our calendar, They had been going through three weeks, three weeks of experiencing God, reading God's Word, fasting, praying, and confessing before the Lord. It doesn't happen right away. There is a deep focus, a deep hunger for God's Word. And it was followed by intense Bible study in the second day. And then it took them about two weeks in preparation and to share that message around the nation. And then on the 15th day of the seventh month to the 22nd day, about eight days, they observe the festival of the booth to relieve the experience in the wilderness. And then on the 23rd day, they begin to dismantle all the books. Then now again, right away on the 24th day, they come together again to seek the Lord. They come together to spend time to read God's word, to pray, and then to fast, and then to worship. That is a sign of revival. When there's more scriptures, when there's more prayers, when there's more fasting, when there's more worshiping, that is a sign of revival. Because one of the signs of revival is, We want more Jesus. We want more of God. God is so much wiser, so much more powerful. He's so much richer that he can't be just like this. Christian life can't be just show up on Sunday and go home. Can't be like that. And then for the whole week, he, he just disappeared. He's absent. That's not relationship with God. So when they come together, They want more of God. And all this coming together with the spiritual disciplines bring us to our knees. You see, revival breaks out when there's a prolonged period of seeking God intensely and searching our own hearts. And therefore, we call upon you to pray, not through the pastoral prayer, not through the prayers of your teachers, but you need to pray and seek God yourself and pray for revival. And many of you hear the challenging begin to come to the prayer meeting. Because we believe that even though we said that we will pray at home, but those who say I will pray at home usually don't pray. And we need each other. We need to encourage one another as we come and pray together. And I was so encouraged to see a group of young people, high schoolers. They had to do homework. They can't come at 7.45 and pray until 9 o'clock. It's too intense for them. It's too difficult. So they came at 6 o'clock. Uh, Ryan, our intern, brought, uh, brought this together and, and encouraged them. They came at 6 o'clock and pray until 7.30. Then they go home and do the homework and get ready for the next day. I was so encouraged by that. Our young people are responding because they also know that it takes more than being active and do more things to have a vibrant church. It takes a revived heart, a revived spirit to do that. So I want to encourage you Encourage you to come and pray together. Some of you came once a month, others came every other week, and some will have the husband come and the wife stay home, others will have wives come and husband stay home and they, they turn, but they come and pray together to seek God and to worship God together. There is a display of genuine repentance as they begin the revival. Verse one says, They will assemble together with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. That's a deep humility of the Israelites when they come in the spirit of repentance. And that's their culture, and that's their custom. When they are deeply sorry for what they have done, they will put earth on their head, dust on their head, and they will wear sackcloth, and they will fast and abstain from food, as a show of deep grievance and repentance together. See, humility is a prerequisite for revival. And then verse 2 says, they will separated themselves from all foreigners. Why? Because they need to focus. They are not against foreigners. They always have foreigners live among them. But for this special period of their time and for this purpose, they have a deep feel and deep conviction that they have to be separated so that they can focus on dealing with the issues of their hearts. Even though they have built the city wall, but they know it takes more than a city wall to fortify a city. It takes more than a city wall to bring security to the people. They need spiritual revival. So they are separated from the foreigners and they deal with... Issues of the home front, and they had to deal with that heads on, and and the word of God becomes the mirror that reveals their heart condition, the hammer that breaks their stubbornness, and the sword that pierces deep into their core. They were looking at a self-directed reflection to come before the Lord. Verse two says, and they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. You see, honesty with our spiritual condition is essential for repentance. And feeling sorry for what we have done that offended God is essential to cause us to repent. You know, the decisions of the past generation affects the next generation. So when the Israel came together, not only confessing their own sins, but they were also confessing the sins of their fathers, of their past generation. Now, we can't pass on sin to the next generation. Every generation, every individual has to deal with their own sin issue. But the past generation may have led a bad example, may have compromised, and the next generation pick up from the example. The same thing get passed on. It's the modeling. It's the habits. It's the heritage that get passed on and affect the next generation. So for our generation, our exhortation is, may all those who come behind us find us faithful. That we cannot drop the ball in this generation. We must continue to be faithful so that the next generation will be faithful. And verse 3 says, they spent three hours in reading of the scriptures and three hours in worship. Says they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. It's about three hours. And another quarter of it, they make confession and worship the Lord their God. There is no express lane for revival. There is no carpool lane to get you there faster. Revival, it takes spiritual discipline. It takes a prolonged period. It takes focus for us to come to the presence of God. You come as you are in full humility and focus in that intense moment of seeking the Lord. That's what will bring people to revival. There's a display of repentance. And then secondly, in verses 4 and 5, there's a call to praise and worship God. With all eight Levites standing on the stage, they begin to cry with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And with another eight Levites standing on another stage, they begin to call the people to worship and say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. You know, when we talk about revival, it's not all about penitence. and It's not all about brokenness. It's not all about repentance before God. Because for people to, to come to repentance, they must see the greatness of God. For people to come to repentance, they must acknowledge that God is great. And I need to grow and I need to reflect myself and I need to grow so that I can know Him deeper. It is in confession that we grieve for our sins, but it is in worship that we truly see who we are and our need for compassion. Just like Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the skies open and the Lord sitteth on the throne with his seraphim singing holy and holy and holy and the whole place was shaken, guess what happened? The Bible says, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I am doomed. For I have sinned the Holy God, and I am man of unclean lips, and I live among men of unclean lips. When he sees the holiness of God and the greatness of God, he begins to have a self-searching reflection of his inadequacy and say, "You know, I don't measure up. I don't measure up. I need you. I need to come before God in compassion." It's just like Peter. When whole night he was fishing. And then Jesus came and said, go to the deep, cast on the right side. And when he saw the catch was so full that it was unbelievable, it was not possible humanly. He came to the, to the beach, he came to Jesus and said, Lord, take me. Lord, I want to be a disciple? No. He said, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinner. He was aware that standing before him, this carpenter from Galilee, he is the holy God. And when you see a holy God, you'll begin to see our inadequacy and there's a need for repentance before him. There's a call to praise and worship God, to stand up and bless the Lord. Meaning, be visible in your worship. Meaning, be intentional in your worship then we are called to bless His glorious name. Glorious means God's God's
1: brightness.
0: But if you study the root of the word glory, doxa, it means weight. It means weight. It means it has weight. It has substance. Why do we worship God's glorious name? Because God is heavy. God is weighty. It is an important issue. Meaning when we come together to worship the glorious name of God, we take God seriously in our worship. And then he continues to say, exalt Him above all. In our worship, Christ is above all. When you have a high view of God, you will have a humble servant. Coming in repentance and in confessions in worship and praises of God. When you see the greatness of God, you begin to see how far and how little and how much we need to come before God. So in revival, God is exalted, men and women are humbled, sin is confessed before Him. You know, confession of sin is not natural. It's not natural, even for Christians. We tend to hide, which is the nature of sin. Sin is to hide. We seldom sin in open. It's too embarrassing. But in the hiding of darkness, that's when temptations come in and say, nobody's going to discover. Nobody's thought about that. And the lure of that temptation will draw us into it. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they were hiding away from God. To confess before God is just not natural for us to do it. Admission of guilt is awkward. It should be awkward because it grieves the heart of God. It should be awkward because it offends God. It should be awkward because sin rebels against God. Because sin is defiance against God. It should be awkward. It's not right. But when we are touched by the greatness of God in worship, that's when we are willingly submitting ourselves in the presence of a holy God and say, God, I need you. As a song we just sang, Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need you to empower me. I need you to fill me with the Holy Spirit. I need to be reminded of your word so that I can do your will. There's a call of praise and worship in revival. There's a display of of genuine repentance but thirdly in the following verses 6 to 15 a long section uh, in that in that passage we, we begin to see a recognition of the acts of God we begin to recognize of God's work in our lives beginning in verse 7 and 8 beginning in verse 6 we begin to see God's act in creation it says you are the lord and you alone you made heavens The heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. There's a recognition that the universe doesn't come on its own. There's a recognition that the whole solar system and the whole universe doesn't work on its own. There's a, a, a great mind. There's a great designer. There's a great God. Who puts all this together? And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus Christ sustains all things by his powerful words. That all things work together because of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's a creator of the universe, and with his powerful words, he sustains the whole universe. In creation, we begin to recognize that it is God behind this wonderful design, it is God behind all that we do together here. But more than that, God is not distant, God is not far away. When we come to the state of revival, we begin to see the hands of God in individual's life and also in our lives. Verses 7 and 8, in the way God chooses chooses Abraham. That you chose Abraham and then you brought him out of earth. And then verse 8 says, you make covenant with him. And then you give the offspring the land in Canaan. God's hand is behind the life of Abraham as he leads him forward and do his will. But more than that, in verses twelve, in verses nine to eleven, God's hand is in a deliverance in the days of their Egypt uh uh, uh enslavement. Verse 9 says, I saw you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, you heard the cry. And verse 9 says, verse 10 says, you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. And then verse 11 says, you divided the Red Sea so that we can go through on dry land. And then verse 12 says, by a pillar of clouds, you let them on the day. And a pillar of fire, you let them on the night. It is God's hand doing all this. And then verse 13 says, you gave them the laws, the true laws, the good statutes and commandments to guide them how to live for you. And then you help them to make known your holy Sabbath and command them all the commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. And then you fed them. You fed them with the bread from heaven. You fed them with the water to quench their thirst. And then you told them to go in to possess the land that you have sworn to them. Over and over again, you see the initiation of God. You see God's proactive plan and will to be directed at different people, in different stages, at different times, in the creation, and also on earth. God's mighty hand, God's activity is evident when you are being revived and you come to to the senses and to the awareness of God's work around you. And that's what happened when we allow God to touch us in a special way. Because God is deeply engaged in human history and affairs. God doesn't stand on sideline and just let things happen. God acts according to His will and for His purpose as well. He's a God who does His will. You look at your life, if you look at my life, we all have a story. How is that story, story being played out? as a christian in your life story do you see god's gospel story play out as well you know sometimes i feel that today as a christian we have somehow fallen into a kind of philosophical theology it's called deism d e i s m deism means there's a god there is a creator there must be a great designer of the whole thing. Otherwise, the whole universe can't work together. It's not possible. It's too complex. So there's a God out there. But you know what? God does His own thing after He created the whole heaven. And then we, the recipients, the created people, uh, and, and creatures of this world, we do our own thing. It's like we are on a parallel line. And when we are in a parallel line, we never intersect. We never meet, right? When you have two lines that are parallel, you can go for eternity. And then when you are perfectly parallel, you just go on and on and on and on until eternity. It will never intersect. And my fear is that sometimes as Christians and even as conservative evangelical Christians, we, we somehow either intentionally or unintentionally begin to embrace that kind of a lifestyle of we live our life and God lives His life. And it's wonderful that God, you created the whole universe. It works so well. It's it's beautiful. And thank you. Okay? So why don't you go back to your heavens? And then we, we'll take care of ourselves. We are okay. We'll do our own things. And I wonder whether There is a big disconnect in our Christian life today. That man and God go parallel ways that we never intersect. There is no intersection in our lives. And revival is the recognition that God and human intersects. That God took initiative to be recognized through the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming into flesh and live among us and to show us who God is so that we can know the Father in heaven and become children of God through His work on the cross to die on our behalf in substitution of our sin. He took upon Himself our sins so that we can be reconciled with the Father. I, I'm fearful of this disconnect. I am fearful of this deism that is dis- in display in our Christian life. That God, you do your stuff, I'll do my stuff. Thank you for saving me. Okay, I can go on now. Uh, do your will in heaven, but please, not on earth. May your will be done on he- in heaven, but not, not in my life. I'm perfectly okay. I'm happy. Please don't disturb me. Please don't change my schedule. Please don't change my priorities. I'm perfectly okay. So do your stuff. I'll do my stuff. I'll come and worship you. I'll come and visit you on Sunday. I'll give you some money. Okay. I'll do a little bit of volunteer works. Okay. But please stay in the church and let me go back to do what I want to do. Let's not interfere each other. You know, in a culture that values independence and privacy, sometimes we unnaturally or unintentionally fall into that parallelism. OK? God, I believe in you, but let me live my life. Is that you? Is that you? You know, having lived among you for four years now, and been a pastor for four years, into five years now, in fact. And having moved back to the U.S., uh, back to a middle class and uh, Chinese church, uh, most of us. Uh, I, I am becoming more and more fearful of this deism. I don't think we set our minds every day and say, I want to be a deist. But it's just that whole macro environment just pushes us into that direction. And sometimes we don't even know. <laughs> because it is so, so, so much of this happening around us. The big disconnect. And we need to connect. A line needs to intersect with God when we invited Jesus into our hearts. That there is no privacy before God. Do you know that? That there is no private sea before God. Psalm 139. Where can I run from your spirit? Where can I hide from you? I can go to the feathers of the ocean and I can go to the darkest place. You are there. There's no privacy with God when you invite Jesus into your heart. He doesn't need your pin to get into what you are thinking, what you are having. God doesn't need a password to have access to your data in your cell phone, in your YouTube, in your Instagram. He doesn't need a password. God is everywhere. He knows. He's a mighty God. But somehow, when we live in this culture long enough, We just feel like, hey, that's my privacy. Don't tell me what to do. Let me do my own thing. You do your own thing. I do my part, you do your part. (laughs) I do my part of coming to worship you and give an offering and do something. You You do your part to provide me with all these resources that I can go on and on and on and on. I'm afraid that is some of our theology. It may not be in the textbook, but that's how you live. And some people call it functional atheist. It's a very hurtful word. Functional atheist. You know what is functional atheist? Meaning that when we sit here, we believe in God. But once we get out there and begin to function and do something and live our lives, then we become an atheist as if God doesn't exist. It's a very painful label for many of us who are actually living that lifestyle. There is a big disconnect. You know what? We need to connect. We really need to connect. We need to connect by coming back to the spiritual discipline, the spiritual habits that will bring awareness and reminder of God's presence in our lives. You know, habits take time to build. It's like, you know, 63 way is closed on fairway exit, right? On-ramp and off-ramp, you can't get on, you can't get off. Are you still using that? Or at least naturally, uh, you will just come to fairway drive and say, oops, it's closed. So you drive further to Lemon and then you, Nogales, just to get access and turn around. Because you've been doing that for so many years, right? I did that too. It, it, it takes me, I don't know, three weeks to slowly, like when I come to 57, 63 way, okay, I need to exit at Brea Canyon Road and not come to Fairway because it's close. It takes a while for you to remember. And it takes a while for you to keep praying to God. It takes a while for you to read God's word. Because if you don't do that intentionally, then your natural response is come to Fairway Drive. If you don't do that intentionally, the natural way you respond to God is, hey, that's my privacy. God, you take care of yourself, I'll take care of myself. And you can't go on like that and to live a Christian life. You can't go on like that and claim to build a vibrant church together. No way. It's not possible. And that's what we're calling you to come and grow together and pray together and read God's word together and connect and connect with God on your own, individually, while we faithfully preach God's word, but every one of you needs to connect with God individually. Secondly, I want to apply not only to the big disconnect about deism. Secondly, I want to challenge you this morning with these three words, no more pretense. I know it's hurtful. I know you may be offended, but no more Pretend. I believe, personally, having lived my Christian life and pastoring church and meet church members for all these years, I believe, I really believe that we know it when we are not right with God. You know it. You know it. You know what a Christian's relationship with God should look like. You know it. You have heard enough. You've been disciple. You can go through enough small groups and Bible study and hear enough sermons to know that what it takes to be connected with God. But we just pretend. We just pretend that it's not important. We just pretend that it's not there. We just pretend uh, that, you know, it's it's not me. It's not about me. It's somebody else, okay? And then when we hear sermons, we hear for, for others as well. We hear on behalf of other people that, you know, so and so, if they heard the sermon you will be revived. But today, I want to just speak to you up front and be kind of blunt with you this morning. No more pretense. You know it. And no more excuse. You know you can do it, but you are not willing. You are not willing to take the discipline You are not willing to change your lifestyle. You hold on to it too strongly. You are not willing to let go of something that is preventing you from knowing God deeper. That's the only issue. The issue is not you don't know it. You know it. I'm as blunt as I can right now. So I I I don't want to make you feel bad. Okay, Preaching is supposed to inspire you but you need to know where you are in order for you to go from where you are and where God wants you to be to experience the abundant life in Christ. And there's no other way but to go back to God's Word, study God's Word, and to go back to prayer, go back to worship, and go back to allowing God to rule in your life. There's no other way. I can't think of any other way. So when we call the church to revival and call the church to come back to God together. We, we are asking you to have a greater awareness of the works of God in your lives. So when they trace the history from Abraham to the days in Egypt and wilderness, they see God's hand in there. And do you see God's hand in your life to bring you to where you are today? Or actually, you relieve that deism. God does His own thing. I do my own thing. We are perfectly happy with keeping each other at a distance. And as long as we are at a distance, I'll be happy and God, hopefully, You will have too. That's not the Christianity that I know. That's not the Bible that I know. Because the Bible calls us to deep intimacy with Christ. like the vine, and the branches. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Unless you are in me and I in you, you can't be effective. You can't live a vibrant life. But if you abide in me and I in you, you will grow fruit. You will bear fruit. That's the only way. So let's come back to God. I don't know where you are. You know where you are. No more pretense. You know where you are. You know what needs to be done. But the will to do it and the determination to be willing to embark together, it's all in your hands. As a pastor, I can't force you. I wish I could. You know the pastoral stuff? Biggest struggle is we wish we can just tell our people and just, at them and force them and, you know, and said, everybody, you know, read your Bible three hours. Oh, no, no can't do that. Too long. Uh, you know, prayer, you know. But that's, that's not Christian faith. Because Christian faith is not based on one man or one woman. It's not based on one pastor telling you what to do. Because you have a personal relationship with Jesus. And you need to embark on that. We can inspire you, we can encourage you, we can remind you, but you need to embark on that journey together. Are you living that deism life? God and me parallel. Do your own thing? I, I do my own thing. Or are you at the self-deception of pretense that I don't know. Thank you for reminding me. I, I don't know how to do it. You know it. You know it. Let's embark together. Let's walk together. Read your Bible. Pray. as the beginning of a vibrant life and a life of revival. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reminding us. And it's, it's, it's hard sometimes to preach a sermon like that and sometimes it's hard to hear a sermon like that because our nature is to be defensive. Because our nature is to go back to the old way. Our nature is to go back to the comfort zone. Our nature is to try to justify why we are who we are today. That's our nature. But you are calling us not to live according to our nature, but according to the teaching of God's word. So today we come before you and say, Lord, in my weakness and in my unwillingness, May you stir in my heart a spirit of revival that I will yearn and thirst of the God's word and come before you in prayers and confession so that the richness of Christ and the abundant life that you have promised can be realized day by day as I walk with you. and we ask you to convict us, we ask the Spirit to remind us so that we are willing to. Submit ourselves to the teaching of God's word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.